Welcome back. Um, and we continue our march through, uh, through the history of the Fresh Air Farm. Um, hopefully this journey will inspire you um, uh, after you hear about the, the inspiring creation, the, uh, the courage uh, that it took to form this, the need. Um, and by the time we go through history, we'll be renewed in our dedication to the, this great institution. Um, that has changed over the years, and we'll hear about some of that. Um, we'll hear about some of that this this uh, Sunday. Um, so, Henry Edmonds was an advocate. We talked a little bit about this last week of the social gospel, um, who's influenced at least by that that movement. And the idea was that um, not only do you care about the souls of the individuals that you're, you're facing, but you also have to minister to their needs. And there were great needs when he came to Birmingham. Um, the industrialists who built this uh, city uh, had, had done an amazing job of, um, of creating a city out of nothing, but that what they were really creating was an industrial camp. Um, this is from that 1912, uh, the survey publication we talked about um, starts here. Immense fortunes have been made in Birmingham out of Birmingham resources, many of them by members of the oldest families in Jones Valley, but many of the successful money makers have been still more successful money keepers. Few dollars of theirs have gone to boost any uh, public welfare moves. Before God, said one of these, I will be damned before I will put my hand in my pocket for anything. As a consequence, social, educational, artistic, or philanthropic activities here have not yet become strong-winged. There is hardly a flash of recognition for any patriot service done by minister, teacher, writer, artist, geologist, attorney, or businessman, nor the first, the first burden bearers of Birmingham, the pioneer workmen. A month or so ago, during an anti-tuberculosis campaign so courageously prosecuted by individual effort, a certain so-called physician belonging to what, we, what is termed the native element refused flatly to cooperate on the grounds that the newfangled doctors in Birmingham were all fools in trying to stop tuberculosis. Why, he said, they'll put themselves out of business. Um, in the early teens, uh, the life expectancy here was um, uh, in the 40s. Um, now it's in the mid-70s. Um, out of every 1,000 births, um, 100 died. 100 babies died within their first year. That's, that's down to 7.6 today. Um, in 1917, six of the 10 leading causes of death resulted from communicable diseases. By 1946, only two, TB and pneumonia, ranked in the top 10. I mentioned 1917, um, 
they, they statistically mention this because this is drawn from a board of public health, Jefferson County Board of Public Health publication. Henry Edmonds was in, instrumental in sponsoring and uh, hiring a, an initial health officer for Jefferson County and by 1917 the Board of Health was formed and we began public health at, as an outreach. Between that period, 1917 and 1947, typhoid, TB, scarlet fever, diphtheria, malaria, measles, epidemic, epidemic meningitis, polio, and smallpox decreased by 93%. Um, it is astounding to think of what we did through public health uh, in, in the 20th century and um, we, um, as a church, were involved in, in, um, in making that available to children. So without um, further ado, I want to introduce Bob, Bob Castleberry. He is a uh, well-known, nationally known pediatric uh, cancer researcher. He was born in Atlanta, married to Becky Myers um, for 54 years. With two children and three grandchildren, he was educated at Emory, um, and he retired as professor of pediatric oncology, hematology at UAB's Children's Hospital. Most importantly um, from, for this morning, he was a member of IPC. He's been a member of IPC since 1972, was an IPC choir member under Joseph Shriver from 72 to 1999, first started serving at the Children's Fresh Air Farm in 1972 and was the camp doctor from 1975 through 1996. Um, and with his wife, and continuing uh, the connection with his wife, Becky taught STAIR classes, uh, tutored with the, the STAIR program from 2006 to 2010. So without further ado, Bob Castleberry. I appreciate that. IPC has been a very wonderful place in uh, our lives since we joined in 1972. And I must say what got us here was we came to a spring um, concert of the choir. And Becky and I both had come from Emory University and had sung with uh, Bill Lemons, a well-known choral director, who was there for almost 30 years, and went on tour with him multiple times and thought we would never sing again because she, we had children, and then I had new new career to take care of. But coming here got us started. We love this church. We love what it stood for. I had even known the I, we knew Scott McClure, he was our senior pastor at that time, wonderful man. Political, absolutely, you have to be, in a place this big and this complicated, but he did it well. Uh, didn't always agree with things he used to say in his homilies, but that was okay, that was a good thing. Um, but I also knew John Lukens. Uh, interestingly enough, in, in my work in pediatric hematology and oncology, I ran into John's son, who was a colleague of mine at Vanderbilt. And he was a pediatric hematologist and oncologist. In fact, he was the director of the division up there. And he and I both served on the subboard for, for HEMOC to make up all the questions that we do to, to license people. So I got to know him well, and through him I got to know John Lucan Sr. And his sister, who is no longer with us, unfortunately. So I've had a, a wonderful, 
blessed past with this wonderful church. But it, um, a lot. Of, I love the singing. I love the choral side of this. But the thing I remember many, many times, many days of my life is what we're here to celebrate today, and that has to do with the Children's Fresh Air Farm. Um, before I get started, I would like to, I know you know her, but I had never met her until 10 minutes ago. And this is Jeanette Kennedy Hancock. And hold your hand up so those who don't know you can know you. The special thing about this lady is she was the daughter of Hughes Kennedy. And uh, she just told me that she uh, was very lucky at her age because she was young and she could lay low, as she said, and be below the radar for mom and dad. So she said, until this all came about, she wasn't totally aware how much Dr. Kennedy had done. And so I would like to say thank you for allowing your father that time and thank him for letting you stay under the radar so he could. <laughs> so um, this, this is a, quite a trip. I got started, as was just mentioned by Tom, actually when I came to UAB, I trained here, uh, and I trained in a laboratory here, and I trained at the cancer center here. And during those days, of course, there's lots of call and lots of things of that nature, and it's a little hard to get free. Um, but I, I, I trickled into a number of the clinics uh, over that time, and I was just taken aback by what was going on and by watching uh, Dr. Kennedy do his magic. So I started coming to Moore, and when I finished my training, I had to go to the military. I was a part of the old Berry Plan, which most people in this office, uh, in this room, may or may not even know. It was a plan required by the government that if you, uh, during the doc, uh, doctor's draft part of the draft in this country, uh, back in the 70s, uh, doctors could get out of the draft by getting on the Berry Plan, finishing your training, and go in and practice your subspecialty in the military. Well, I did that, but I had to go back in. So I spent two years away, and then I was invited to be back on the faculty and came back. Now, about a year or so after that, I got my feet on the ground at UAB and began to come back to the clinics, and I did more and more. And like a lot of people, like Adam Robertson, uh, attended many, many clinics and um, got more and more interested in all the fabric of what was going on and the history of what was going on. So I talked to Dr. Kennedy off and on a lot about this, and this went on for three or four, maybe five years. And one day I got a call from Hughes, and he said, Bob, I'd like to take you to lunch. I said, well, sure, absolutely. He said, are you paying? Because at that time I didn't have any money. So uh, he said, oh, yes, yes, I'll take care of it. So he took me out in, in his uh, very laid-back way, as we all know him. Um, we sat and talked very comfortably for a good 30 minutes or so, and he said, well, I've got a question for you. And I said, what? And he said, I'm tired and it's time for me to step aside. And I would like you to take on the medical part of the camp. And I was a little bit surprised, and he said, we've worked together now, and I think, I think you, you'll, you'll do well there. So I accepted, and he reached in his pocket and pulled out this chain, uh, chain, chain of keys and gave them to him, and he said, these are the keys to the farm, and I've had them for 40 years. And so I took those home, and I put them in my strong box so I wouldn't lose them because I was very forgetful in those years, <laughs> more so now. But anyway, I, I, I put them away and used them for many years, even when the new farm, new big house was built. Um, I switched out those keys so I could get there when I needed to. And I had a wonderful ride for 21 years 
with this children's fresh air farm with lots and lots of wonderful people. So as a part of what I want to do and help this 100 year, uh, year celebration is to, when I thought about the fresh air farm and, the, and those years I was with it and the years of history I read about, um, I said it's, a, it's, a, it's just a unique and powerful institution as Tom has just said. And I said, why is that? Sure, there are great people working for it. What's going on? And I think a lot of it had to do with early leadership by Dr. Edmonds, and for that matter by Dr. Kennedy, of thinking of a project that would serve a serious need in the Tri-County area around Birmingham. And those were the indigent needs, um, the, excuse me, the needs of the indigent pediatric population who were right in the middle of the public health crisis that you just alluded to, which was very serious. Um, and we were a little slower than many counties around the country to get up to speed on that for a lot of reasons, part of which you've read. Um, a lot of that was hard to break through. But um, Hughes Kennedy is the kind of person that I've always described, you never see him coming. He's so quiet, so unassuming, but before you know it, his right foot's in the door, before you know it, his left foot's in the door, and before you know it, he's sitting in your living room talking to you. And this is what he did in his work with the Fresh Air Farm and working with Edmonds and others. Um, set up an institution that the strength of which, in my view, is that over time, it adjusted to the changing needs of all these kids and their families. Don't forget that. You can treat the kid, but if you don't treat the family, you're not going to keep that kid treated very long, be it psychosocial, be it physical, whatever. And he, this institution said, all right, we're in the 30s now. We've got this to deal with. And so they dealt with it. Within the 30s, for instance, the Depression came along. What happened? Well, most institutions, as you well know, they failed. Failed apart. They didn't have any money. IPC including, was struggling in those days. And Dr. Kennedy stood up, came up forward and said, we'll get a, a number of people to contribute their personal resources out of this group of um, giants who had a lot of money but didn't spend it. And they did. And they kept that farm going during the Depression. Kept those kids coming. Kept those connections with the public health, what it was in that day, going. And I am convinced, pure hypothesis, but I am convinced that had not that occurred, uh, we wouldn't be here today. There would be no 100 years for the CFAP. And again, with the strength of Hughes Kennedy and the backing by the church and uh, Henry Edmonds, they were able to bridge one of the most significant serious initial crises of, of this camp. And I want people to be aware of that because I think that is a significant thing. And so moving forward, you move through a lot of crises that surrounded this, this camp. Uh, you can't forget World War I. You can't forget World War II, the Korea conflict, the changes that occurred in the 60s and 70s. I was a 60s child. You know, I knew what was going on in that time. The society was all topsy-turvy and people, you know, being angry and doing crazy things. But the farm board and the leaders of that board saw what needed to be done, and they just kept coming. They just kept adjusting, kept changing what they did. 
And it's just proof that systems, there are not many that stay around for 100 years, and certainly not many that stay around 100 years and have this much success, and still have new programs that we'll hear about next week and then week after of all the things that are gonna happen and have happened even since the traditional camping camp converted over to a different motif. And so that's the, that's the premise from where I start. The other things that I think challenge the board, uh, I mentioned social issues, um, but there, the change in, in health and health focus in this country started with tuberculosis, big, big problem in the early days. Over time, despite all the politics of it, it got better. And then we started facing the communicable diseases. So then we had a 20, 30 year period where the immunology of infectious disease exploded in the laboratory and on the clinical research focus, uh, level. So that now we had people who knew how to develop immunizations. And that began with DPT, diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis, or whooping cough. Went on to MMR, mumps, measles, and rubella. And went on to polio, which is in my area. Uh, I, I was a wave of children who got the first polio, the salt vaccine. And um, watching the data over that long period of time, uh, it's quite remarkable, whereas these diseases were ubiquitous all over the United States, particularly in the indigent area, where public health measures were not as enforced because it was the indigent area. They just all came down once the immunization started. Well, the farm had to adjust to that. So one of the goals of the farm, about the time I got into it, was when kids came to be examined and so forth, a lot of effort was found beforehand and during that to say, what immunizations have you had? And are you up to date? Because these kids are gonna come out and anywhere from 50 to 100 are gonna be at a camp three times in the summertime. They're gonna be splashing water all over each other. They're gonna be playing together, wrestling in the dirt, uh, eating together. And you've got to make sure you're not passing disease from one to another. And that was a, a change that occurred. So that was one of the little things on the check that were boxed. We used to put a little, little piece of paper on the kid's chest, pin it with a single straight pin. You couldn't do it this day and time. People would go crazy. Kids are gonna hurt themselves with straight pins. They can't do that. So we did it and didn't have any real problem. And so there were about seven or eight levels of check and it would go through and check, check, check. So let me tell you how this worked. Um, and many of you already know this because you probably participated in some of these clinics. Many of you don't. The policies and procedures of the Fresh Air Farm were organized in such a way to take advantage of the fact that we had to uh, get these kids ready to come to camp. So those who had applied and looked like they were gonna be coming to camp, we all met them in several clinics during the winter in the basement of IPC, and they would come through anywhere from 60 to 100 would come through in a clinic day. But sometimes we had three, four, five clinics because we didn't, couldn't get enough kids one time to cover all that. And during that time, they had a physical exam complete. We already had history background from the parents' information that they had provided, including immunization um, documentation. Um, they had um, dental exam, uh, which you may not know. 
we had Dennis come here, and, and Rupert Bodden, I think his name is, um, he's quite uh, a giver to this church. He worked all the time uh, as one of the dentists, but he was kind of one of the centerpieces of the clinics, and he examined each and every one of these kids. He also was very important, by the way, in several of the missions that went to Honduras, did a huge amount of excellent work down there. Um, so they would come in to get that, and then they'd be done. And then the farm staff would get to work because things that came out of that stimulated what needed to be done between that time, March, as it were, and the first pre-farm clinic that occurred in June. And those things would be done interacting with the public health uh, department, with the social services area as needed, with uh, the medical, actual medical care of these kids as needed to interface back and forth to say what are the problems this kid needs to be, uh, needs to be dealt with for this kid before he or she comes to the camp. And it, and it was a huge amount of work just behind the scenes. You never saw it. So come spring, we had three sessions, and I talked to Dale about this, that um, in, in the little Mission on the Mountain book, I don't know if any of you have read this, but if you have it, you need to find a copy and read it. It was written by uh, Oscar Duggar, and it, it outlines from 1926 to 1964, I think, the farm activity. It's short, but it's very, it's power-packed with people, facts, um, all, the, all the giants, including Miss Martha Robeson, that we may, may all remember finally. And um, it, 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 it goes over a lot of these things. It said they had four sessions. But they all know I can remember anything but three in our time. But it may have been four. But it was three in, in the majority of the years that came down from for 1950, I'd say, forward. So we started in, with the first session. And the kids for that session came to another clinic here at IPC, went through the same process again. And any things that were picked up on the first clinic visit were checked, the boxes were checked, these have been taken care of, they're ready to come. And if things hadn't, or if they were found to have infectious diseases that could be difficult to deal with at a camp situation, that had to be taken care of too. Um, and then there were a lot of families who just couldn't get to that pre-camp thing, so we had to do camp physicals the first night before they ever went to bed. So once that camp session, that uh, camp clinic got done, uh, I, I would go out, or Hughes Kennedy would go out to the, to the farm, and we'd examine 10, maybe 20 kids, again, to get them done to be ready to move forward. This happened three times in the summer, and each summer session had this pre-camp clinic, and at the end of the summer session, anything that was picked up then would go back to the issue of what can we do for next year? What can we do for this family and this child to make sure that they have every opportunity to come back and not be dangerous to anyone. So at that point, especially early on, were kids required to have the full list of immunizations? They had to. The public health uh, um, edicts at that time, policies, were that you can't get into a, a cluster situation like that and not have documentation that that was done. And see, if they hadn't been done, then that was one of the clinic's tasks is to make sure they had been done before the kids came. Because it, it, to get rid, as we tried to learn with the COVID, it wasn't done very well to all of us out in the, out in the public. 
you have to get herd immunity, and to do that, you have to 80, 90% immunity. To do that, you had to have 80, 90% of them immunized. And that's why the public health issues in the, in the days when I grew up, and actually in the early 60s and 70s, if you didn't have a full immunization record up to date, you wouldn't be allowed in school. You just couldn't be there because it's a public situation, and that would just exchange these organisms. And same thing in camping situations. Most camps, I worked as a teenager in a big scout camp down in Covington, Georgia, and we had to have proof that they were up to date or they couldn't come in. How often what? I can't give you the data. I'm not sure we, I, I, don't, I don't know those data. I'm, I'm not even sure we kept those data. The point is we knew what they were and those patients would be followed up to make sure they had the right thing done. So I don't have, I don't think we ever really compiled those data that I've ever seen, but it, it was a system that followed it up and made sure it was done. So this is, this is what happened. Um, the mechanics of the, of the camp. The last thing I haven't mentioned is uh, you're at a camp and you're dealing with kids and they're rambunctious and they're oftentimes not very cautious and so they get hurt. They twist ankles, they get cuts, they get splinters, they get things in their eyes, they step on things, uh, they get sunburned, they get hit in the mouth by somebody playing ball with them. All these kinds of things and, and here they're out there by themselves with these camp staff and parents know where we're at. So you've got to have a backup. Plan. The backup plan was that uh, uh, Hughes Kennedy or I, when I was doing it, um, we were on call. And if things happened that needed to be dealt with, they could call us. Many times we could deal with it over the phone, sore throat, what do you do, this and that and the other. Um, but then this trauma thing was another thing. So I, I, I took it upon me myself to go in and give about an hour session in first aid this simple old Boy Scout type of first aid, to say what do you do if, and what don't you do if, and what do you do, what are the things that would make you, we gotta do something, get this child to the hospital. What are those kind of, most of those are obvious, but not always. So I would go out and the camp uh, staff would be corralled in a big room and we'd, we'd start talking about things and get questions and answers and back. Seizures, what do you do? What don't you do? Things like that. And then I gave them some ideas as to when to call me so we could get the kid to a hospital. And we set up a really nice relationship with the Children's Hospital of Alabama, particularly their emergency department, so that if someone called, or I, you know, some physician called, and in my day it was me, and said, all right, we have a kid that's got this and this and this, and we need them seen. And so they wouldn't get into the ER mayhem that was bad then as it is now, well, people go and wait four hours to even get in and then wait another two hours in the room to be seen, and then maybe eight or ten hours later they're through and they go home. Well, you're taking not only the kids' time away from camp that may not need, be needed, or and you're taking a staff members away from the camp because they go in with them. We set this up so they would be kind of streamlined into, the, into there, be seen by one of the residents, one of the staff, faculty, be taken care of quickly, and if they needed to come to the hospital, they came to the hospital. If they didn't, they would go back to the farm with whatever therapy they had. And that worked very well, and it kept staff from being away from the camp for so very long so that they go back and do the job they were hired to do, and that is take care of these great kids. So this is the structure that I came into and I worked with, and I 
say kudos to the people on the board and I'm sure a lot of leadership from Dr. Kennedy to set up these policies and procedures because of the kind of things you had to do to have this kind of operation. So over this long period of time, and I do mention long period of time, I began to make some observations. You, you can go into situations, as you know, and see it once a week for three weeks and then walk away. And it's like the, the person trying to describe an elephant when you've got a blindfold on and you're touching a tail or you're touching a leg or you're touching the trunk. What does an elephant look like? Well, you're going to be, you're going to be biased by that limited sampling of what you touched or felt. But when you see something over a long period of time, uh, it begins to bring some strength. And that just, in my mind, validates my comments about the strength of this institution we call the Children's Trust Air Farm. That over 21, 22 years that I did this, the change in the, the population that I was lucky enough to deal with was dramatic. I don't mean just okay, it was dramatic. When I first started, even in the 70s, um, there was sing, uh, serious problems with hygiene. Kids were dirty, and they weren't always filthy dirty, but they were frequently dusty dirty, if you know what I mean. Kids who got dusty and they just didn't get a bath every day, and if you touched them, you felt, you felt dusty. And I used to go home and tell my wife, Becky, I'm dusty today. I got to go take a bath. I've examined 80 children today, and I got to get the dust off my hand. That was the common. And uh, their hair was not always clean. They often had skin problems that had to do with hygiene. Um, they had a lot of these kinds of things. And I was talking to someone earlier that when they came, I think it was Anna Kate, uh, when they came through, the, the sense you got from these kids was fear. Now, fear in a kid is manifested by usually one big thing. That means eyes wide open and dilated pupils. The deer in the headlight look, because they had, particularly those who hadn't been there before. This was new. They had never seen anything quite like this. People who are well-bred, look nice, smell good, clean hands, taking care of them, being nice to them. Many of them never saw that sort of thing in their society. That's just the reality of life. And so they were scared, many in those early days. Um, many of them were scared they were going to get a shot. How many needles do you have? Where are they? I don't, where are the needles? I want to know if I'm going to get a shot today. This kind of thing. It was a real thing. But over time, like all good institutions that, that, that stay, and all societies which talk to each other, the word spread, this is what we do at IPC. This is what's going to happen for the camp. This is what's going to do. And that got out. And I think in those days, then, the number of people wanting to come went up. And it went from, as we were talking earlier, Dale, from 40, 50 a week to close to 100 a week for three weeks, three sessions. That's a pretty significant increase. And as I watched these kids over those 20 years, I watched the cleanliness change, the hygiene change, the oral uh, health changed, their nutrition, they looked different. They had a little uh, adipose tissue. They could borrow some of mine. <laughs> had a little adipose. And they started looking like healthy kids. And their attitude was the same. It moved in a direction that kids were used to. Even when I was in my cancer clinics, three days a week, 
you know, you think, oh, those poor little kids with cancer. Oh, it's just so sad. No, you should come to my clinic. It's a happening. Kids don't care about cancer. They want to be a kid. They don't care about getting a spinal tap. They just want to be a kid. And they're running up and down the halls screaming and yelling and having a good time and talking to the nurses who are going to do the procedures, loving them more than they did us. That's what kids do. And this is what I begin to see at the Fresh Air Farm, kids who acted like kids. And I think with the training and influence that the staff of CFAF had on families, teaching them to access help where they needed it in certain areas, public health, social support, and so forth, um, you begin to see this whole thing change. And when Becky and I retired and moved into STAIR, we got a lot of kids who had been to the camp in STAIR. Amazing. And those kids were just like a totally different population, but they were nothing more than a few years older than they had been earlier. So, Charles Fessier Farm did this, and it did it in the context of a country like ours, and a state and county like ours, which is constantly changing. And politics, as you pointed out this morning, always a big part. It's always a big part. There's no way you're going to ever get around it. And so, Moving through that forest of obstacles, Fresh Air Farm made it, and it still made it. I must say that the, um, I wish I could have stayed longer. I didn't because at that time, what I was doing down here, um, I reached 53, I think. And that's well known as the time when things explode. And that means one of two things. Either you fail totally and you're out of it, and nobody cares what you're doing, or they want you to do something else. And I was fortunate enough to be in the do something else thing. And so I got some jobs nationally and internationally, and I just I could not give it the, the hours that it took to do. And I asked, can we get someone to sit in here? And so that's why I retired in the late 90s. And at that time, things just got out of hand, and I was out of, I was out of town all the time. So I hated it that I had to do that, but it was just a reality of the world. I couldn't keep on doing and, and do what I had tried to do at UAB. So I hated to leave that, but I watch it and go on just as strong as it ever has been, and I really appreciate all those who've done that. I want to thank Hughes Kennedy again for what he's done. You know, he brought intellect, he, he, he was the guy that I define as a piece of gum on the bottom of your shoe. It just won't go away. <laughs> and he was that kind of person, and you never saw him coming, but he always got it done. Do you know that Hughes Kennedy was one of three major players to bring the Children's Hospital Alabama into fruition? Did you know that? You didn't know that. He and one other pediatrician, if you go to children's right outside the grand round rooms, there's a pediatrician sitting on a chair and his hands like this, he got a big old cigarette. This was in pre-smoke pre days, you know. I, I mean, the smoke, smoking was okay days. And he is here and Hughes is there, an oil painting. And they took the hospital that was called the Children's Hospital. It was up on, I think, 20th Street up the hill looking over the city. It was, a, it was like the old farmhouse. It was just an old house that was two or three stories, 
and they had made little hospital rooms out of it. They set up a pharmacy in the basement and that. That was the children's hospital. And Hughes said, we gotta have more than that. We got kid, the, the town is going to grow. It's exploding. We gotta have facilities for children here. And UAB's medical center was beginning like this. And he says, they're doing this. We gotta be a part of that. So he had vision to say, what we were doing with children needed to be just as important as what we were doing with adults in terms of good care, tertiary care, that is highest level care, and research. He believed in that. And so he worked on this, and now you see the Children's Medical Center downtown. That's the, that's the outcome of his early efforts. And it would have never happened had he not been going on your shoe, and he did it. So I thank him again. I thank Miss Martha. I didn't know her well, but I know her well enough. <laughs> She was quite a lady. She gave her heart and soul to this thing. She had ways that she liked it to be done. And when Felix Yarber came along, uh, that was a challenge to some extent, but it still worked. It still worked. And so I thank her. I want to thank Felix and the entire Yarber family. They have been the centerpiece of this operation for a long time, all of them. And you'll hear from a bunch of them next week uh, when they come who were actually very, uh, their leaders out and workers out at the farm. And now they're in the ministry. Um, wonderful kids. Anna Kate ran the elevator at the clinics. I mean, it, it, all of them did somehow. And Felix was always there, of course. And he and I had words along the way because we didn't have always agreements on things that happened out there from a safety standpoint. Just what you do, you have, you have positions and you come to a meeting of the minds and you get it done. And finally, Dale. Uh, she has a story. I'm going to let her tell it. But she had a story I've heard for the first time this week about how she actually assumed the, the uh, directorship of that uh, operation. Um, it was an interesting story. I'm going to let you tell that next week. I think everybody needs to know that. But she did an, a superb job in those years and uh, allowed me a lot of latitude uh, out there. And, and I really do appreciate it, Dale. You did a great job. <laughs> Well, listen, those, I know we need to get to church. Those are the comments I have. I'm really very grateful for having this opportunity. I haven't talked about the fresh air farm in public a lot. I've thought about it a lot in private. But I really appreciate it. I'm so happy to have met you, Jeanette, and um, all of you who supported it with your time and, and, uh, and resources. Uh, it's well appreciated, and it's a good investment. Keep doing it. Thank you.